Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Where the adversaries move quickly. They know, like, it's a constant race against them. What, what little loophole can they manipulate in tech, in communication, in the law? to continue to do what they do and you try to close that loop and then they find another let's go welcome to citizen we've got a special guest today ryan fugit um you've got you got a lot of stuff going on so why don't you introduce yourself yeah sure thing so uh i'm uh, ryan fugit i run the a combat story podcast where we interview veterans about their combat experiences. We've been doing that for about three years. Um, I'm a former army vet. I flew Apaches for seven and a half years, uh, spent eight years at the agency at CIA uh, running ops, and then made a transition over to tech in Silicon Valley. I worked at Google for several years running an Intel team, and I'm still in tech at another big tech company uh, today that I just don't uh, name when I'm on air. Mm, fair enough. Um, so let's uh, let's jump all the way back. What what was the uh, where'd you grow up? What what area? I I grew up overseas. My my dad was career State Department. He was an Army aviator in Vietnam, and then did a full career as a political officer at State. So I grew up. I was born in Belgium. Grew up in Zimbabwe and Pakistan. Uh, moved to the U.S really um for the first time when i was in junior high when i was 13. Mm. um and what was that like i mean what, what like how long did you stay in one place i guess the longest i've ever lived in one place is where i am today and i've been here four years so when i was growing up we would often stay someplace for about four years and then move even high school it was four years um and then off you know to college so it was moving quite a bit and you went to school and then joined uh, the army. Did you join with the intention of becoming an aviator? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, I did ROTC and kind of when it came down to selecting the branch, it was between aviation and infantry. And my, I have a brother who flew Kiowas. My dad mm. flew Hueys and Nam. Um, so it's kind of part of the family. Uh, so I, I went that route. I do have regrets at times, but there's no way I would not have regrets. Even if I'd gone the infantry route, I mm. wouldn't be able to talk to my old man the way I can now since we've both been in, uh, you know, downrange in a cockpit. Yeah, he sounds like an impressive dude. The most impressive thing he did was survive flying a fucking Huey in Vietnam. That's right, man. Holy no shit. No joke. DFC, Silver Star, like pretty impressive. Yeah, that was uh, a not fun job to have. No. I mean, I, I flying an Apache is quite a bit better. I mean, and I think flying a, a a battlecraft of any sort is better than flying a carrier of any sort, whether it's on the ocean Agreed. or on the ground or in the air. But man, that uh, <clears throat> the Huey had some issues, right? Uh, like there, it's. I think the old saying was, if you're if the Huey isn't leaking oil, you better put oil in it because that means there is none. Um, <laughs> Which is it's reliable real. though, man. That thing's a workhorse. I mean, yeah. they still use them with the Marines today. They just, they're versatile. Whereas Apaches, like I had 10 Apaches in my company in Afghanistan and there were days where we only had two that were functioning. Why do you think that is? Avionics. They're just giant computers, you know, made mm -hmm. in 1985. So there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. In a Huey, it's it's a lot of linkages. You have very few computers that you yeah. got to worry about on board. Well, we've got, um, so... Since the um, since the Apache went into service, we've had the uh, F eighteen, the twenty one. I'm sorry, the twenty two, the thirty five. We have. Wh where's the next Apache? Why is that not a thing? I mean, they tried to make one called the Comanche. I don't know mm -hmm. if you. I remember, remember yeah. this. Yeah, it was like late nineties, um, and it just didn't. It, they got some prototypes out. I never saw one fly, but it was right around when I was going to flight school, like 
just after 9-11, like they, they killed the program. Mm. It just didn't add enough uh, beyond what the Apache delivered. It was supposed to have kind of like that stealth fighter technology where, you know, hard to pick up on radar, but I mean, with a, with a rotor wash, does it matter how much you're picked up on radar, to be honest? I mean, I guess it always matters, but I mean, you're, you're making yeah. noise. You know what I mean? You're not like, going to hover over a city and not be seen. No, you'd still have a signature for sure. But um, like even when we went to Afghanistan, they were trying to to augment our Apaches with some. It wasn't super advanced tech, but stuff to just dissipate the, the mm. heat signature to avoid um, missiles, basically. Mm, I see. That makes sense. Um, and uh, what units did you serve in while you were there? Were you in like 7th Cav or some shit? I was in, uh, I did one tour over in Germany um, with 6th uh, six Cav. It's mm-hmm. a disbanded unit now. Um, and then I went downrange with the 101st. So I was with the um, 101st Combat Aviation Brigade. Mm, cool. Uh, at least you guys don't call yourself airborne because nobody over there is airborne. Uh, not to <laughs> split hairs or anything, but take that tab off your fucking shoulder. Um, <laughs> I, I got to say, man, we're getting ready for a trip. I'm taking the family over to, to Normandy um, oh, yeah, yeah, over yeah. the holidays. And you just can't get away from the 82nd and 101st <laughs> operating in that same theater. Like, yeah. I wish I could have heard some of the back and forth back then. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they talk quite a bit of shit. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, so... You, you're in the Army uh, as an aviator. you got a family history. Your brother was in at the same time as you, and he flew Kiowas, you said? He flew Kiowas, but he wasn't flying at the time. He ended up doing acquisitions by that point for uh, 160th and some of the, hmm. the spookier sides okay. of the aviation community. And uh, uh, you do how long in the Army? I did just about eight years. And what made you decide to get out? Was it just going to Air Branch, or did, what, did you decide to do that, or what? No, yeah, for me it was just wanting to make a clean break from the military. Like I'd been in, you know, all post nine eleven. Enjoyed the deployment, did not enjoy garrison, yeah. and just thought like I'll I'll try my hand in business. And I think like a lot of people, I went into the private sector for two years doing consulting, and three months in, I hated it. I just, you know, like the guys I had just been downrange with were going back again. I was sitting there at barbecues on the weekend. It just I felt guilty, honestly. Um, so I was, I had grown up around the embassy community and loved that experience. So I pushed really hard to get it uh, into CIA, mm. which is what mm. I ended up doing. But it took me, you know, a year from start to finish to get my foot in the door. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a pain in the ass, right? Dealing with those assholes yeah. um, or dealing anybody in federal government is just, is such a nightmare sometimes dealing yeah. with that. Just the background check process. Like, didn't, didn't I just do a background check? six months ago oh, this is a different yeah. this is a single scope back it's like yeah that was the same thing that you just did dude exactly um, exactly so what do you uh uh I, I guess when you get into the agency you know you're doing whatever you're doing air branch is uh one of the lesser known uh, the, the only thing you I, I was not in air branch though oh you're an ops you're in do or do i was a do officer okay. yeah so um <clears throat> narrowly avoided air branch i would say like Again, I would say very similar to wanting to do infantry as well as aviation. Like, mm. there's a part of me that would have loved to have done the paramilitary side in Air yeah. Branch, um, but I had already done some of the downrange stuff mm. and the traditional like bread and butter work of the agency is that operational tradecraft. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. what I I stayed with. Yeah, that's um, honestly intellectually that's probably more fun um, than just uh, trying to spike your adrenaline all the time. Um, I don't think many people know much about what goes on um, with, except for the odd movie here or there that comes out like this, you know, uh, it it used to be (laughs) less, um, well, I don't know, the Vietnam era, a lot of dudes got recruited to start their own private companies that were basically contract companies for the agency. That was a really common thing back then. It seems like now there's a lot more organic employees of the actual agency. I wonder why they do that, to be honest, who knows, but... Um, you're, uh, you've pivoted now into, uh, I guess back into the private sector over the last, what, 12 or so years. Um, yeah, pretty recent now is probably five years back now. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, it's been uh, recent. so, so I guess one of the questions I would want to ask is what, what did you see change of landscape wise 
from the operations we were doing from the time you were in the military until the time you were in the agency? Because things switched up quite a bit, right? I mean, we try to get leaner and more kinetic, right? When things yeah. are kind of, um, when we're not doing like attrition war and stuff like that. I think, you know, my, everybody's experience, you know, is slightly different for me. What I, cause I was very tactical, you know, in the Apache, obviously we go out in teams of two, um, we're doing recon, we're doing kinetic, you know, like deliberate hits with SF teams supporting them, but it was, you know, very myopic. The agency is so broad. Um, so if you're working war zone efforts there, I think the big difference that I saw, and, I, and so I can't really speak to if it changed, I, I would I would assume it's fairly consistent throughout the post 9-11 era. It was just so uh, multinational, mm. like the, the work we did with other um, countries and partners and allies was so important because every country brings their own kind of like skill set to the game. Like the U.S. has a lot of money and can pump uh, can pump that into operations, but some of these other like leaner, more nimble services have skills in SIGINT or HUMINT, or they can get into places we can't as Americans. And so just seeing that from the inside, I think was really, really interesting, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say it changed over the post 9-11 era. It was just my experience of it. Um, mm. You know, I saw more of it yeah, at the yeah. tail end of my career. You think it should change? I mean, uh, you know, we make a lot of mistakes, uh, but you know, the, the the downside of intelligence operations is you only ever hear about the mistakes, right? So it seems like they're all mistakes, I guess. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I don't think it should change. I think it's changed a lot since the seventies. Like the sixties and seventies, just des like really put a black mark on the agency for some of the ops that went sideways. Um, I think there's more oversight now, which is good. I mean, it's a pain when you're in the building and having to get approvals to do everything, but I think it's useful to make sure you've got some transparency for people who are cleared to see it just for accountability. Um, but I wouldn't want to lose the, the audaciousness, you know, kind mm -hmm. of like how aggressively we'll go after targets. I think that needs to, to stay. And I think the multinational, like that allied approach to solving problems needs to continue. Um, there are just things we as Americans will not be able to do that our partners can do. And we need to lean on them for that. Yeah. I mean, that used to kind of be, well, I mean, that, that was the original purpose of, of, uh, uh, you know, the agency even before it was the, but when, when it was OSS, OSS you know, it's to, yeah. to be in the same way that special forces are a full force multiplier, right? Like take your uh, uh, financing weapons and expertise into an area and build something right exactly with, with the help of the locals it seems like you know <clears throat> over the last 20 years or so we've taken a little bit more hands-on approach militarily speaking which is was uh, in my opinion a mistake like the idea that a bunch of white faces were going to go into Iraq and Afghanistan and convince them of anything seemed a bit myopic and actually naive maybe even dangerously ignorant frankly but you know uh State has done, state actually did a really good job. Nobody knows about what state did to prep battlefield for Iraq, especially, mm -hmm. right? Like there were uh, DOS guys in the north because once Turkey shut down uh, the <clears throat> the airspace up there because the 82nd was going to jump in uh, to the north side, once Turkey shut down that airspace, a bunch of DOS guys got dropped in with the Kurds to set up some fucking outposts and stuff. Nobody has any idea about any of these stories. They're not classified or anything. They're in books, yeah. but nobody's ever, never, no one's ever made movies. It's not about sexy. Everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but it's like a bunch of, a bunch of dude from Madeline Albright's fucking uh, protector protection detail are in the middle East now. Right. With no language skills at all. They don't know what the fuck's going on. All they know is how to do operations. Right. So they go up there and they set up a bunch of operations. Anaconda gets a book. This doesn't. Well, I mean, it's That's been true. mentioned in books. I've seen it, but it's just weird. Those the stories that we pick and choose because that that story to me is pretty incredible. I just I've never heard it told except for by people who were literally there. That, yeah, that is that, that's a good point. I think I am more. I'm a little closer to it because my dad was career state, mm. so like he was full on political officer for 25 years. So I I have a very 
kind of good understanding of how important state's role is. But I, I will say one thing I noticed from the military and the agency, there's there's a tendency to look down on state as these like uh, weenies that don't get out there and kick in doors, um, but they're diplomats. Like their job is to be at a table. Like I just had my dad because Kissinger passed away last mm. week, right? A hundred years old, amazing guy. Um, I remember my dad did, uh, my dad was brought in specifically to Moscow with Kissinger for a session with the Russians talking about Southern Africa. Mm. At the time, my dad had done several tours in Southern Africa, and he was an expert on Angola, where we were fighting in the Cold War against the Russians. He had just come out of that. Kissinger was like, hey, Fugit, you're with me. You're coming to Moscow. We're doing four days of meetings with the Russians. You're coming in on day four. And I'm going to tell you exactly what I want you to do. Um, but that's the kind of stuff like you're not going to see that in a movie. That's not like a sexy shoot it out scene, but it kind of determines the fate of Africa between two world powers. Yeah. Uh, and now it's just mostly China and Russia figuring out that fate for Africa, right? Um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, technically you might blame on Kissinger. We'll see. Time will tell. You never know, right, how things are going to go. Um, it seems like China is kind of coming uh, making some deliberate moves. I know there's some angst in the South China Sea, as there always is and will be probably. I mean, that's the, basically the the uh, Palestine-Israel of the water. It, it's just always going to be contentious there for for whatever reason. But um, <clears throat> I got to say, you know, like um, I think it was a month ago when the Five Eyes, you know, like mm -hmm. the five allied uh, partners, the communities came together and the heads of those um, organizations, you know, gave, the first time ever they've come out and said, Hey, there's a real threat here and it's coming from China. Yeah. Um, I think people in DC get the weight of that, but probably most people don't who, uh, who haven't lived inside the beltway or in the military community. The fact that that's the first time those five organizations come out and say something is a pretty good indication of, of that threat. Do you, do you read anything into, uh, China's made several statements over the past, uh, let's say, two months or so um, <clears throat> about wanting to normalize relations with the U.S. and the West again and, and be partners and not, you know, let some of this other stuff come between us. I, I, I don't know if that's just pillow talk or if it's, you know, I mean, just uh, some casual diplomacy or if they're like, I think a lot of countries I've, I've been hearing this from people I know at state now, a lot of countries are very concerned about um islamic terrorism again where they haven't been for the last let's say five years or so but now it's starting to creep up again yeah what do you read into that i mean i guess i hadn't connected that the second piece the islamic threat with the china warming mm. um i have seen that islamic threat i mean france just saw another like two sets of islamic focused um attacks in the past two months with china that warming up i think is um a result of financial concerns in the country and a reliance on the U.S. as an export market. So mm. my background was in political economics. So I just have always seen the uh, the reliance that the, that the two have. And I think it's an economic um, necessity for them to warm up with us uh, because of what they're going through right now. Yeah. So if you're advising, uh, you know, state or if you're advising POTUS, what, how do you tell them to take advantage of that situation? Because obviously China is having some financial trouble, just like everybody else. Yeah, I, I think in true uh, Machiavellian fashion, like we're gonna we're gonna push for what's good for us right now, and I think part of that is going to be de-escalating some of the South China Sea. It won't be entirely the case, but I think pushing back a little bit there and giving them a little bit of what they need financially. Um, but I think overall, it's going to be good for us too, just in terms of. Um, costs as we're dealing with our own inflation and and high costs here i think this is probably close to a win-win with china as they warm up and hopefully we're taking advantage of it significantly right Wait, now i mean we have economically and militarily we definitely have in the past right like when uh china had this period where a lot of human rights issues were being launched at them and blah 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 they were starting to get a bad rep major retailers were starting to limit you know purchases and blah 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 and then, you know, um, they started to get a lot of competition from Vietnam and Cambodia for production, textile production especially. And, and um, you know, they 
improved their working conditions for people, not Uyghur Muslims, obviously, but they improved for actual Chinese people. They improved working conditions and pay quite a bit. Um, and costs came down quite a bit and then they regained a lot of that market. I wonder if this won't be a similar situation, right? Because obviously, uh, they're, they're not, it's, I wouldn't say that they're, um, they're not like us. They're not an information economy, right? I mean, it's, they, they have to produce things. Manufacturing. Yeah. But, and I do think the hardest part of all, not, not the hardest part, but I guess from my like Intel background, the thing that worries me, and which is what the, the five eyes were talking about, was the, the theft of intellectual property. And all the warming up we do isn't going to stop that. You know, like we can try to stop it. And I know we work very hard to do that, but it's very hard to detect. Um, and it's easier now for an adversary to get their hands on. Um, on new tech through venture capital and acquisitions. So that's that's not going to stop just because we're warming for a little bit. Well, so a lot of, uh, uh, I think there's 17 governors that have written a letter to the president now asking that some something be done about China being able to buy American farmland, especially. I wonder if there isn't something similar mm-hmm. to be done about uh, M&A with regard to tech or finance or whatever, right? Because yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's a great idea. Um, China, pe- people talk about China owning America and, and debt and stuff. They own like 4% of our debt. It's not that much. I don't, people bellyache about that a lot, but that's a kind of a red herring. The reality is they've been buying up, as you said, lots of private, aside from the 3,500 or so cyber attacks per month that we receive from China, they also, um, uh, I guess, passively steal IP by acquiring companies or whatever, right? Um, I wonder if there isn't something to be done legislatively about that. Like the libertarian side of me says, well, it's no, it's not the government's business if I want to sell my company to the Chinese. And then the other part of me is like, fuck China. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a good point. So it's like, I don't, I don't know where to land right there because they're, they're obviously I, a bad actor. I, I hear you on that. I think, I think we will see legislation like saying, hey, this company cannot be sold to them or these organizations or these you know, foreign companies cannot buy this like land to your point. But I think the hard part is it's so easy to obfuscate who it is doing the purchasing. So like we might find some of it, but I don't think we're ever going to really stop it because of how easy it is to hide your hand. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've done okay with ITAR's regulations, right? Like the tech that's in medical devices, that's in communications devices and stuff like that. We've done okay, I guess, at protecting some of that stuff. But we still buy quite a few precursor components from actual China in the fucking first place, right? So I'm not sure if that's making the the dent that we really think it is. Um, And this is something that you kind of did. You mentioned working in the private sector. Uh, uh, Some of this stuff goes on in tech companies globally, and it's kind of hard to police this stuff. You know, uh, they get a bad rap a lot and, you know, sometimes deservedly so, but you're talking about billions of impressions per day, right? Yep. Um, how, what, what do you think the pitfalls have been for tech companies so far? And, and what have you seen get, get better, I guess? Yeah. So I, I lived in this space for several years with Google and they've got, I think a lot of us, we hear Google and we think of like search, but they've got eight products that are used by a billion people. That's staggering. Mm. And so the volume of content that they have to review and police is just on another level. When you come out of the government where you feel like you're looking at a lot of data, it's not even close. So I think they do a great job of taking down 99.9% of the really bad stuff. But when you're talking in the billions, like you mentioned, that 0.1% is still a lot in raw numbers. So they do, they, they leverage AI, they leverage machine learning and tech where they can. The hard part of these, like I, I kind of refer to them as gray area cases that something doesn't clearly violate policy, but it doesn't look good when you, when you run it by like the Washington Post, the New York Times test, um, a, a video that stays up that doesn't yet violate policy and you got to review policy in that case. So like at Google, we would cover terrorism, um, child exploitation, uh, fraud, scams, uh, like 
there's just a never ending stream of bad actors who can monetize that stuff. So trying to keep pace is very hard. So what do they do well? They leverage tech as best they can, and they've got literally armies of people around the world reviewing content. Like, So you've got people, humans, who have to sit and look at like beheadings, mm. and they have different tech that they use to make it less psychologically damaging to those, um, to those people who have to review. And they're literally clicking a button like, take this down or keep it up. And... And it's going to be imprecise forever. So I think that that is the challenge, which is how do you reconcile? You're never going to get it right. And it just takes more and more people as you have more users using your platforms. Yeah, I think that's like a never ending struggle they're going to have. And then there's uh, the obvious elephant in the room, and that is the Department of Homeland Security and FBI uh, requesting that tech companies censor on their behalf, which is now kind of an established fact. I think it would be hard to deny that that happened at this point by anybody, although quite a few legislators continue to deny that it happened. But uh, it very clearly did um, with uh, CISA and a, a couple of other things. The Stanford uh, 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 disinfo group was pretty fucked up as well. I mean, <clears throat> like, how do you balance? Like, I, I don't think uh, you're, there's this debate between being a publisher and being a throughput, right? um for for other people to publish it's like all right cool i mean you're technically even if you're a publicly traded still a privately run company to some degree so you have the right i suppose based on your shareholders input to do whatever the fuck you want frankly right but you don't have the right to act as a censor on behalf of the federal government that's that's a, still a violation of the first amendment so i wonder like how do you balance because there is a lot of fucked up shit that needs to be taken down taken down child pornography there's a lot of stuff with regard like the violent stuff i mean that is what it is that's just a a policy i mean certainly can be damaging to people but you know the child porn's got to go but it's still up in a lot of play like that was a big problem for twitter especially they didn't they were they were doing a lot of work on behalf of the federal government and not so much on behalf of children in america so i wonder like how do you balance like, what, what do you do when the fucking D, when DHS calls you and says, hey, we don't like this Hunter Biden story because it was true, turns out, right? Some of it, I would say, is is just the law that you have. So, like, we see it in the U.S., but, like, when you're inside that company, you have takedown requests that you have to do from every country around the world when their government leans in based on their laws. And Google, because it operates in all these places, has to abide by those. and And they have to publish what they do. So like when they do a takedown request from a government, they publish it. And so you could see it on their website. Um, they don't do a great job, I think, of publicizing that because there's a ton of data folks can go through if they want to see what they take down. So some of it's they truly don't have a say unless they don't want to operate in that country. But because they're a private entity and they want to make money, mm. they want access to consumers who are in those countries. So they have to abide by those rules. To your point, though, like some of that in the U.S. is like child pornography that is illegal to have up. They have zero choice. When the when NICMIC, the the National Center for Missing and Endangered Children, mm-hmm. reaches out, like Google has to act. If it's if it's a policy decision that's not illegal, though, that's the tough part. And that I think having been in the military and government, I hear more of the censorship on one side. But you when you're inside that beast of Google, you hear it from both sides. Like, why are you taking this story down? This is important to us, but you don't do it to the other side. I think they do it both directions. Um, well, do you have an example of a, of a pro-conservative or anti-left story that got taken down? Because I, I, I I've not heard that, but I'm sure, you know, there were all oh, I mean, actually. Yeah, I, I was at Google when they did, when we had the uh, 2020 election. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you had both sides had um advertising taken down because it violated the uh advertising policy that was put in place and it was literally on both sides of the aisle um it could have been around any issue you name it like gun control Mm -hmm. abortion but it would come up and they'd have to take those things down if they violate policy. Well, this, this, that's advertising, but I'm talking about like a news yeah. story, like the Hunter Biden laptop. Oh, all right. uh, and it wasn't just, by the way, I'm not just trying to lay this on tech. 50 or 60 former intelligence officers 
wrote letters saying that it was Russian disinfo, and they were they had all lied. None of them knew what the fuck they were talking about, or they were just straight up lying. Um, and then you know the tech companies were more than happy to take that down. Not just the tech companies, but all the major newspapers and, and across the country as well. As well. So it's like, is there an is there an example of that 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 targeted the left and not the right? Because I don't think I've ever heard of one. This episode is brought to you by Ghostbed.com forward slash Drink It Bros. Ghostbed. It's the best bed in the world. It's the most comfortable sheets, pillows, the whole thing. I've got them all, man. And you know they wanted to extend their best possible offer to Drink It Bros. They've been with us for a very long time. So. This is the email they sent us. We want Drink It Bros to get the best offer, so I updated the code for 50% site-wide. That's 50% site-wide. Use the code Drinkin' Bros. Drinkin' Bros with no G. For 50% off site-wide, everything that you buy on this site is going to be 50% off. Again, they got the best pillows, sheets, mattresses. They got the mattress protector. Uh, if you're If you're sloppy and spill things and you don't want to jack up your mattress they have pretty much everything you need they've got weighted blankets now they've got the adjustable base which we really like i've got one in my home so go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros use the code drink it bros for 50 percent off site-wide and don't forget about their pay-as-you-go plan if you're with approved credit you're going to be able to pay this thing off over the course of three to five years for 25 to 35 bucks a month it's nothing go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros today and use the code Drinking Rose for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by BlackRifleCoffee.com. The best coffee in the world. As a matter of fact, they won both the gold and bronze medal at the Golden Bean Awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category. So the best coffee on earth literally was Circus Bear by Black Rifle, one of their ECS. So I recommend that you go sign up for the Black Rifle Coffee Club. Use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. And, uh, you know, you get all the benefits for being in the coffee club. You get the free shipping. You get access to all the partner deals. Uh, uh, you get access to the exclusive coffee club. You get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does. You know, it's a very large club that they have over there. And the coffees are premium. Every single one of them is good. Uh, you, you're going to get experience for you you can do just the plain coffee club and if you want your two bags of of uh, espresso or your two bags of silence or smooth or whatever it is you drink you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather you can use the ECS the exclusive coffee club and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like you know what I mean? So then you can order those premium coffees from Black Rifle as well. So, and we all know they got the best branding, the best merch, and they're buddies. You know, we're all friends here. Uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something. Do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. This episode is brought to you by firstform.com forward slash citizen. Free shipping on all orders over $75 when you use the link. And you're not going to spend less than 75 bucks. I mean, they get the best products in the world, especially the OptiGreens. You know me, I don't eat vegetables um, because they're fucking pointless. So I supplement with OptiGreens 50 from First Form. It is precisely formulated green superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. It's really good, aside from just getting the daily greens into your body that you need, and make sure, by the way, you're taking this with MCT because you have to take anything like this with MCT. 80% of your immune system is located in your gut and your digestive tract, right? So healthy digestion is essential for overall health and wellness, not to mention that most of your serotonin, I think 96% of your serotonin or 94% is made in your gut as well. So you're going to be in a better mood. You're going to feel better physically, and you're going to feel better mentally if you are taking these greens. OptiGreen 50 has 50 chosen ingredients, uh, effectively dosed. It's not necessarily how many ingredients there are, though, but it's, a, it's about the right amount of each. Taste and texture are like no other product in the market. It's not gritty. It doesn't have a weird flavor. It's got sweet berry flavors, actually. 100% uh, of the greens are all grown and manufactured inside the United States, and they are bioavailable. Now, they've got other products as well. They've got the Microfactor which you see behind me on every show, uh, and I take them every day. You know, you got essential fatty acids, CoQ10. You got all the stuff you need in one little packet for your daily vitamin pack. And you mix that. You, you make yourself uh, uh, OptiGreens 50 shake. 
and you, and you take those pills with it, and you're going to improve your life precipitously. You're going to feel better. You're going to look better, so on and so forth. So go to firstform.com. That's one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com forward slash citizen. Use the code. You're going to get free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at that, but I'm probably getting into waters here that I should not. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, we'd have like, this was a running issue for us. And it wasn't just ads. Like I use ads because that's a Mm. very specific space, but it's on blogger. It's on YouTube. Well, there's also, Um, there, there, there are laws around advertising too, right? Um, yeah, not, not just, sure. a, not just about like the truthfulness or whatever of the ad, but the way in which you can target specific groups, especially kids, right? You like Google went through this big time. What, what was that? 2014, maybe I don't remember when that was yeah. that big lawsuit where on YouTube kids were getting fed all kinds of advertisements and they're like, all right, let's slow it down with advertising stuff to kids. We're, we're not trying to get them addicted to sugar and shit. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like some of the stuff no, is no, you're right. some of the ad stuff is literally a legal issue that which I don't think many people yep. really understand. I don't think people understand uh, <clears throat> if you haven't worked in. So we own a booze company, and the way we're allowed to advertise that with paid out, like if we're on our own show, we can say and do whatever the fuck we want. If we pay for an advertisement somewhere and it's an actual paid advertisement, the laws about what we can say and stuff like that become very narrow. You know what I mean? Uh, for, a ver- for, sure. for a variety of reasons. So I wonder, like. People see these um, trust and safety teams at the tech companies in a very bad light now because a lot of mistakes were made. But in reality, their primary objective is, one, to keep the company in compliance with the law, and then, two, to make sure that people aren't being preyed upon on the on the platform. You know what I mean? And, uh, oh, for sure. I, I just don't like – everybody just wants to get rid of it altogether. I'm like, well, let's slow down because, you know, babies and bathwater and shit. Maybe, maybe let's take a beat. And figure out like what how exactly we could do this better instead of just throwing the whole thing away because social media is not going away no it's not it this is something that i try to to talk about whenever people will listen like i've i've never worked in an organization where people on the outside didn't think that we were doing something bad so i'm sure you saw this in the military but <laughs> oh, like yeah. i was constantly accused of killing you know innocent women and children because i flew apaches at the agency, everybody like I literally on my show when we do combat story mm. in the comments, I'll have people say like you're a baby killer. You worked at the agency, <laughs> it, and at Google it was no different. Yeah. Like everybody hates you, and I guess my perspective was the jump from the military to the agency. I felt like I was working with the exact same people. A lot of them were former mill, mm. but but it's a lot of people who want to do good for the U.S. They they don't mind getting paid nothing. They're constantly sacrificing time with family. They're also going downrange. Um, and, and so I hated seeing that stigma put on on folks from the agency. At Google, very similar. Like you got a lot of people trying to solve super hard problems. Um, and, and what you hear about are the bad ones, similar to what you mentioned with the agency. Yeah. Like you rarely hear about like the intel that got Bin Laden. That's one of the good stories. You You don't hear about it when it's, Hey, this strike went awry. That was bad intel on the objective. So I think they are painted with a pretty bad light um, in that sense. So I, I would ask people to give them a little bit of grace. You got folks like me who are uniform, and now I'm just trying to fight all this like child exploitation. Similar, similar place, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I don't. I talk about a lot of the show. I don't think people understand the scope. I guess of uh uh predator activity you know what i mean it's like there's 45 to 50 million people in some form of slavery right now globally um and the largest the largest um uh uh, purchaser of uh, particularly child sex exploitation is the united states um which should be deeply embarrassing for everybody right i mean uh, a lot of it has to do with cartels and Broadfoot and Triad and shit like that. Um, certainly they're facilitators, but the the only, like, th- this is the thing that we learned with the quote-unquote war on drugs, which, by the way, drugs won that war pretty handily. Uh, but, uh, you know, if there's a market for something, 
then somebody's going to supply that thing, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. So, you know, I work in counter human trafficking quite a bit and it is every success just makes you angrier to be honest, because it's like, what this is, this is my fucking country. This shit's happening in. And we're, we're number one. We're right at the top of the list. You know what I mean? It's in, I, and these in second place isn't particularly close rate stats wise. I, I, I'd be curious to get your take on this because what I've seen, especially from the agency and then moving into tech, you have, I, I have to imagine this is the case in the work you're talking about mm-hmm. where the adversaries move quickly. They know like it's a constant race against them. What, what little loophole can they manipulate in tech, in communication, in the law to continue to do what they do? And you try to close that loop and then they find another. It's, uh, I would assume you see that often. Yeah, it's like playing this. whack-a-mole. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to think of a way to put this, but uh, an entire operation will pop up and disappear by the, in, in the middle of our in, uh, collection period. You know what I mean? Um, so it's like, now you have to back up though, right? That's how it works in intelligence. If, if you can't, if you're looking at something too close and it doesn't make sense, then you have to back up and look at a bigger picture and then back up again and look at an even bigger yep. picture sometimes. And to be honest, um, <laughs> as much as everybody's afraid of AI, it certainly helps, right? To be able to out- pattern algorithms and look for things and uh, you know, travel patterns of certain groups of people and shit like that certainly helps. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's it is a it's an absolute shit show, and it's the wild west, and it's something that people like. I, I for a while after, like uh, around election time, conservatives will talk about it a lot, right? Uh, they'll they'll accuse everybody of being pedophiles, which there's plenty out there, so you know whatever. But they, it it becomes a big issue during election season, and then once the election's over, it's like, all right, well we're back to everyday life now. But there's this shit's still going on. As a matter of fact, it's getting worse and worse every single day. I got a question for you on that because I do see vets and people from the Intel community moving into that space, but it feels like it doesn't have the same positive um, connotation that like fighting terrorism does for some reason. Do you feel that working in that space? Um, I feel it from the finance side, yeah, from people that would pay for it from government. Yeah, government doesn't have any interest in prosecuting this shit, frankly. Interesting. Uh, local, like, we've gotten a lot of buy-in from, when I say we, I mean everybody that works in this particular industry, yeah. um, has gotten plenty of buy-in from sheriffs and some governors and things like that. But when you go to Congress, there's no interest. Um, le- no to little interest. And then, you know, if you look at um, at the federal level from a, from a prosecutor, prosecution investigative and prosecution standpoint there's a couple of pockets uh secret service has an anti-human trafficking task force now that they run but man i mean that seems like if it, if i was the ag that's what the fbi would do they would only do that until that fucking problem was solved um you know what i mean so yeah i do feel like that but with ordinary people if you tell somebody like well you can't tell people exactly what you're doing right like i i'm i don't do operational stuff i just help you know, do other things. So I'm not worried about anybody knowing what I'm up to, but you know, for people that are into it, <clears throat> yeah. If you tell somebody like, yeah, I'm doing counter human trafficking, they're like, Oh, okay, that's cool. Sound of freedom's out. I mean, even though Ballard's kind of a clown, to be honest, I'm glad he's out of that organization now, frankly, because he just walked around with a selfie stick all the time. People don't know that like 85% of the people they detained didn't get prosecuted because the, uh, the evidence was bad. You know what I mean? So it, it helps to not talk about it too much, frankly. Um, but, yeah, I, I do see that. I do see that um, there is – I don't know if it's it's one of those things where it's so fucked up that people can't get their minds around it. You know what I mean? Like Because when, yeah. you, when you explain the whole thing to them, you're like, yeah, this, this, and this is happening, and it's happening here. What do you, what do you mean it's happening here? Like people are getting kidnapped from America and taken places? No. People are getting kidnapped all over the world and brought to America, right? And then uh, the, the ones that are taken to other places, uh, the number one person that's going to that place to, to use that product is an, an American traveling in, in foreign countries, right? I think it's deeply embarrassing for people, and they don't want to admit sometimes why, or uh, they don't want to admit that that's happening. 
You know what I mean? I, that, that's the sense that I get. What's the scale of that problem? If people ask you that. I think because it seems like a lot of one off. I know it's not one off, but I think that's like you have a terrorist attack that kills 200 people as opposed to like a person is kidnapped and trafficked. Mm. So maybe that people don't see that scale as as easily. Yeah, well, I mean, so like think about you're looking for and this is this is just business strategy, right? You're looking for uh, uh, target rich environments, I guess, to use one of our phrases, but you're looking for a target rich environment that is uh, that can be actioned quickly, right? Preferably in a place with low visibility. So Las Vegas, for example, right? Or the border with migrants coming over the border. Uh, Those are places where there are desperate people. There are people who um, uh, there's a lot of people in a certain area, but not so much visibility on them because of what they do Mm -hmm. or who they are. And then, you know, you can grab groups of people. I mean, so the pipeline from the pipeline from the cartels is all these people will come over the border. Women will come over the border, uh, including very young women. Uh, they'll get processed by border patrol. They get sent to officer resettlement. They'll get picked up by MBM Inc. If it's a if it's a young male, actually, but if it's a female, usually they go to a Catholic charity or if they're uh, if they're underage, they'll go to um, uh, to like I'm sorry, yeah, Southwest Keys, the 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 male one. MBM Inc. will take these people all over the country um, and. The ones that just make it through and don't get shipped to somewhere, particularly in the country, usually will get picked up by uh, uh, some cartel guys. And they get taken to these houses called stash houses, right? And basically, they rate these women for about two weeks. Uh, very frequently get them addicted to some kind of drug, whether it's meth or heroin or fentanyl, and then they'll ship them out to their sponsors, which are supposed to be relatives, but really they're not. I mean, we found cases where... There's like 17 people, women ages 12 to like 17, that get shipped to the same address. Like, oh, that's a big family. You know what I mean? Obviously, that's not what's going on. So the scope, there, there are plenty of one-offs, right? But the taken, like Liam Neeson situation, that's, that's, I think that's far less common than the mass grab that happens here, frankly. Wow. Yeah, and you know, it's the, the weirdest thing about, you know, there's a lot of people that do good work um, in that industry. OUR is one of them, by the way. Uh, they, they do good stuff. It's just, you know, sometimes you need new leadership. But the scope of the problem, like they're, they're like you said, there are veterans jumping into this all the time. Tier 1 guys are all over it. A bunch of former agency guys are all over it. Um, and th- it's still not enough. You know what I mean? It's still not enough. Like, and it, it, I think it's reflective of kind of the, the bureaucratic nature that uh, American policy has taken, where we spend a lot of time looking out and not so much looking in. You know what I mean? We're not spending a whole yeah, lot of money sure. securing our border. We're not spending a whole lot of money on, uh, you know, improving our own country right now. And it's the reflection is there, like you can tell. I do like more of the guys I've interviewed recently have some connection to working in that anti-trafficking space. And one of the things that I found interesting was there's times where they will go and, and gets, might be slightly different because maybe they're, they're tracking down like someone who was kidnapped in the U S. Um, but they end up taking a lot of heat in the process from, Either the, the person ran away and was claimed they were kidnapped. It, it seems like the, no good deed goes unpunished in this space. Like, I don't know how people receive it when you tell them that this is something you work on. Hopefully it's positive, to your point. But I feel like even there, I've heard guys say that they get some negative reaction at times. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, I think there's a, an element of shame in there. It's like if somebody, if you walked into your buddy's house and it was dirty and you started cleaning it up, he's going to probably get offended offended by that. You know what I mean? So when it comes to like local law enforcement feels overwhelmed for sure. I don't think they mind the help 
frankly. Um, yeah. Uh, the federal government, on the other hand, you know how it is, man. It's like uh, every, everybody's very protective uh, of their mission uh, because it's their mission is their budget and so on and so forth, right? Um, you know, it, it's... And, and that's, you know, to be honest, uh, administrators, bureaucrats, their job is to do that, right? But you have to have, and, th- and this is the same thing with the relationship between, let's say, uh, the uh, uh, DNI and the president or all the agency heads and the president or the Joint Chiefs and the president. The president's job and his staff's job is to be an administrator to some degree, right? And yeah. your job as the general, as the director, as the uh, director operations, especially at the agency, right, or the DNI, something like that, is to be like, okay, yeah, we're 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 checking all of our boxes here, but we have a real problem that needs to get solved, and here are the the kinetic actions that we could take to solve that problem, right? So it's like people always blame the bureaucracy, and they never blame the weak ass leaders right below it that are supposed to be the action guys. Like you have to push until the job gets done. That's your fucking job. That's fair. And I will even say at the agency, like you mentioned the the war on drugs, like that part of the agency wasn't, you know, the most funded or the one that you really wanted to end up in doing mm-hmm. counter narcotics. Um, now, they don't have, you know, an anti-human trafficking, like as far as I'm aware, but, it, you know, it's a very different mission set. And you mentioned like the bureau, like I could see them being more involved in it. I mean, they're so good um, at forensic accounting and following the money in these situations yeah. produces the most arrests in my experience right so i feel like the the bureau is like uniquely designed to handle this particular problem and it's casework like mm-hmm. casework in the sense that you got to have a criminal case based or, or some type of case built on this and that's what they do better than anyone yeah i mean if you want to get the prosecutions right you have to right um because we don't as a as a as an entire anti-trafficking entity, like everybody who works in that space, we don't get prosecutions nearly enough. I believe it. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of fucked up. But I am glad that a lot more dudes, I mean, because, like, it used to be Blackwater or Ground Branch or whatever. And it's like a lot of dudes I know now are, are looking to get into this now when they get out. A lot of my operator buddies. So I think it's good. It's like yeah. a... It's a there's a community building right now that is tired of bullshit. So that's that's a positive thing. It seems like there's not money around it though. Maybe that's the difference. Like, you know, if you go to a defense contractor and you're going to be, you know, a, a contractor on some um, some contract vehicle supporting Ukraine, mm. you know, like you can get paid from that. I don't oh, yeah. know what they have in that field now for this. Uh, it's you're definitely not getting paid 150 grand every six months <laughs> to yeah. to deploy to a you know, human trafficking job. Not none that I'm aware of, anyways. Um, but you know, it, it's I think in the beginning, just like a startup, it's good to not be overfunded. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Being overfunded as a startup means that you're going to spend your way out of mistakes that you should learn yep. lessons from. Agree. Um, and I think you know it, it's hard to balance it because we're all fucking meat eaters you know we want to get after it and stuff but uh building things from the ground up is important as well to make sure that that structure lasts the test of time even after we're gone um and then i mean it's a good story to tell too hopefully one day we'll be able to tell it and that's kind of what your side hustle is now is telling stories of veterans uh tell me about this combat story show that you have yeah we uh we started it three years ago now um really for me it basically it's it's a podcast right it's video it's audio it's on all the platforms but the whole focus is it's a long-form interview with combat vets talking about what they experience what they learn from it anything they could pass on good leadership bad leadership um loss sacrifice all that i've interviewed people as far back as world war ii actually we had somebody from uh, battle of bulge who just passed away um two months ago sadly um, up until Syria from 2020 um, and Ukraine. Now I've interviewed a few folks fighting in Ukraine, but for me, I think the genesis of it, and we've interviewed 150 vets. We do one a week, but for me, it was, I was in the agency. I was on a war zone tour and, you know, probably the fourth year I'd been away from my family 
and it just struck me like i don't i don't know if <laughs> how much the u.s population really understands about that sacrifice that the men and women put in downrange um we see it in movies occasionally but there's such a long tail to it and honestly for me it was i just want one politician to see one of these episodes and hear what it's really like and maybe think twice not not before sending someone downrange but just like the decision making a a more deliberate conscientious decision when sending people downrange and what it means not just in the moment but like what it does to families uh, what it does to people longer term um, and so that's kind of the approach we've taken like sharing some of those stories um, I think the ones that get the most traction are your tier one operators, your mm. Delta and your DevGrew folks. Um, but we've had several conventional military uh, guys and gals that have gotten a lot of attention. And I think it's um, it, it could be your son or daughter out there, you know, like for people listening, um, your brother, you get a lot of comments from people. And I know you know this well, like mm. you, you interview a lot of these people, um, but, you know, we'll get comments from folks who will say, hey, you know, my son was deployed and was never able to talk to him about what happened. I feel like I understand what his life was like there now, or he passed away. Um, you know, I can understand what the camaraderie was like by hearing about this. And then we get, I, I expected it to be mainly veterans who listened, but it's definitely not the case. Like it's very, very much um, probably half the people who listen were never in the military. And so it's just an appreciation for what people go through. And it's pretty cool to see, but for the veterans who do listen, I'll get notes every now and then that just say, hey, you know, I listened to this. It's helped me kick this habit. Um, it's kept me alive. I didn't kill myself. I listened to, mm. you know, this Delta operator who went through some serious trauma and I, I understand it better now and I'm not going to take my own life. So it's been rewarding in that sense, I would say. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, you can tell a lot about a culture and society based on who they consider their heroes to be. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And we've, uh, <laughs> we, we've maybe, I, we've made some mistakes about selecting our heroes. You know what I mean? Um, like artists and stuff that, and it's cool produce art. That's great. Uh, but you know, we, we've come to conflate talent with expertise, which isn't always the case or talent with experience, which also isn't always the case. Um, but also, you know, it's kind of, a lot of this stuff is devolved pretty rapidly into, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess to some degree hero worship is always like an affinity or aspirational marketing, right? Like, Oh, I want to be like that guy. Um, <clears throat> and we have a culture now who, like, if you ask the average 12 year old, what they want to be when they grow up, they'll say a TikToker, right. Or a YouTuber or whatever they want to, yeah. they want to create content on social media. Fair enough. That's not a thing, right? That's not like the th the the content you create is the job, right? Like you still have yeah. to be able to do that thing, whatever it happens to be. If you're a cook yeah. or you're a musician or whatever, you still have to be able to, be able to do that thing. But we've kind of gotten off kilter here a little bit about the type of human being we prioritize and look up to. You know what I mean? Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, and I use this quote a lot. But he said that uh, men didn't love Rome because she was great. Rome was great because the men loved her, right? So, like, being able to tell stories about real dudes like this, women as well, who, you know, life is complicated. There's a lot of political shit people don't agree with. There's a lot of bureaucratic shit people don't agree with. There's a lot of practical, circumstantial shit people don't like. But to tell the story of somebody who said, well, I'm, I'm going to put my personal feelings aside yeah. and go sacrifice for my fucking country. I think it's really important to be able to tell that story and have people look at that and be like, you know what? I'm it. Cause I, I think the lesson is that for, for me at least, cause I know a lot of these dudes and I've, I've been to war. We're ordinary people that choose to do extraordinary things. That's it. Right. And the, the per, the purpose for me is to like, you can do this too. You just have to choose to fucking be better than what you're, what you are right now. Choose to put more into this than what you're getting out of it. And that's what makes a country great. You know what I mean? It, that's, that's the story. So <clears throat> being able to tell these stories, I think, and then be able to, for the, the listener, uh, to be able to kind of connect with these people on a human level, like, Oh, that is just a, like, uh, <laughs> I, I know you've had 
uh, Ryan Hendrickson on before. Everybody's got a friend like him, some wild-ass dude that used to put cherry bombs in mailboxes. You know what I mean? Just a fucking psycho. It's like, oh, yeah. but he's a good dude. He's a, it's just my buddy Ryan. He's a crazy guy, right? We've all got a friend like that. He's just he's that friend that said, you know what? I'm going to do this crazy shit, but I'm going to do it for my country. I think it's a really important lesson for people to learn. Even just thinking about Ryan is a great example because, I mean, he grew up homeless yeah. for a part of his childhood. Now he's popping mines he, in fucking Ukraine. Exactly. Like, like he can't, it can't even get enough of helping other people. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it is like it's a great example and and some of the people that reach out and i'm sure you get a lot of this is you know young men and women who are like hey i'm considering a career in the military or the intel community like i want to go and do what these people did um and and it's just so strange to me because i grew up hearing about my dad coming back from vietnam and how he was treated you know mm. and how different it was for us and, and the how fortunate we are that it it is the way it is now. Uh, it's certainly a lot better, you know, um, <clears throat> but I think we're missing one additional step uh, in its understanding. Like people are, people do have a more generalized positive attitude towards those who served in the military now, which is great, right? Um, but yet, like you said before, like bridging that gap of experience and really explaining like those guys, I don't know. Every time I talk to an old vet back in the day to talk, talking to world war two vets, like somebody that was at the battle of the bulge, who was this line in a foxhole with trees exploding around them. I, I have no frame of reference for that. I don't know how, what that's yeah. like. And then going door to door for two or three hours, every single night for a year and a half, kicking doors in and fucking shit up. They have no, they can't relate to that either. Right. So it's always difference, but different rather, but, we were able to sit down and talk to each other and kind of figure it out. It, it, there's a lot of ooing and ah. We, we both admire what each other did quite a bit. You know what I mean? Because it's different to us. But translating that down to somebody who has spent their life in a cubicle is difficult. It really is. Uh, I think it's a very particular skill set to be able to have conversations with people like that and distill it down into a way that makes sense to ordinary folk. It's so true. I mean, Probably the biggest interview we had was with uh, Shrek, John McPhee, mm. uh, you know, former Delta Sergeant Major. And when I talked to him um, a few months back, I was just asking him about, like, um, how does he think, like, a World War II vet would look at what he did? And and he very bluntly just said, like, I ran around Baghdad killing people. I didn't cross that beach on Normandy. Like, mm. that's next level. And even for him, who I think a lot of us would look up to as, like, you did everything that's the crazy stuff that happened since post 9-11. Like that guy was involved in a lot of it. And to him, he's like, I'm not even close to what those World War II guys did. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say that I've noticed in probably only three interviews, I would say, was vets who have gone back and met the people that they fought against and the you know, who the enemy, like one of them was Elliot Ackerman, mm. um, you know, very decorated Marine who has met a card carrying AQ operator in Turkey. And they sat down and had tea with a translator for four hours and they drew out on a napkin where they were and what years and like trying to figure out if they actually fought each other in the same town and they didn't. Mm. And, and it's not like they like each other, but there's a respect there for like, they, they stood up to do something um, and they could sit there and talk about it in a, in a way I think many people can't even wrap their heads around. But you hear it a lot with the Vietnam era folks, and I'm sure we'll hear more of it the farther we get along with Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, uh, it, it isn't because there's a pretty normal analog for ordinary culture for this, but it is kind of weird to think about it um, at its core because like that was the enemy. It's like, yeah, but, you know. When, on a playground, everybody's bristling. There's testosterone, and then you got to fight your buddy. Then he becomes your friend afterwards. Like that shit happens in normal day to day it's life true. all the time. It's true. That's just that. It's kind of the one of the natural ways that we sort one another into categories. Our, our Ken selection, if you want to call it that, from a psychological perspective. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I've said this many, many times before. Um, <clears throat> I've got a lot more in common than somebody that picked up a fucking rusty AK. Uh, to defend what they thought was 
the right thing or their country than I do with some fucking sniveling bitch from the Pacific Northwest who's putting a mask on and trying to burn down American cities because they're upset about some shit that happened to somebody else. You know what I mean? Like, I've got a lot more in common with that dude that wanted to fight than I do with this person. That's what I think is so surprising about it. When you hear that, I think a lot of folks just can't wrap their heads around it. But once you've been down there and understand, it, it, it's not as as surprising to hear that. Yeah. Uh, any other like really standout shows that people should check out? I mean, you, you named a couple of them already, but any other standouts that people should check out? I will say my, um, you know, it's hard to say you have a favorite, but I just did one last month that that struck me. Um, it's a guy who lives locally where I live, and he just retired out of the Marine Corps. His name's AJ Pashuti. He was a Marine sniper. Um, he was a force recon guy. But his story was powerful. There was this um, sniper in Iraq named Juba who killed potentially over like 140 Americans with an American sniper rifle that he took off of a squad of Marines that they, they killed. And so over a two-year period, this dude hunted down and killed over 140 Americans with sniper shots, and he recorded them. This guy, AJ, was in... Um, he, he was the one who tracked this guy down in the end and pulled the final trigger on him, like a sniper shot behind, like a recessed sniper shot on this guy when he was um, filming Americans about to kill another set of Marines. And he trapped him by watching all of this dude's, this Juba guy's videos of killing Americans. So he had to watch, you know, hundred plus videos of Americans being sniped. And, and the videos had to be close enough that they could be taken with a Sony camera. So it wasn't like, a, you know, a video game. It was mm. very much up close and personal, even from a sniper position. So he ends up killing this guy. And that Juba character is fictionalized in American Sniper, this um, Mustafa character that Chris Kyle tracks down and kills. It, actually, this AJ guy killed him. And AJ has a separate incident where he and his Marine spotter are in a tower at the beginning of Fallujah covering Marines and Chris Kyle and his spotter come up and they're fighting from the same level um, and competing for kills, which is just kind of interesting to hear uh, from the sniper perspective. So that one in particular, AJ Pashuti, we did two rounds with him. Um, it's very recent. He just got out mm. and he's a stand-up guy. I'd recommend that one. Good. Uh, yeah, that's episodes 149 and 150 if you're looking yeah. for them. Um, well, look, man, thanks for coming today. Everybody check out combat story it's uh there's so many good episodes um like you said i think you've done what 135 140 people and some of them 150 now yeah 150 yeah i mean some of them have multiple episodes it is uh it is there, there's so much good shit in here um i would listen to every single one of them appreciate it man thanks so much for having me on it's yeah, been a sure. blast yeah thanks man thanks for coming and thank you all for listening this has been citizen Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.